Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> just kidding, guys. No, this is a great opportunity, of course, to go through what the reason is for the season, right? And so, I love that I get to teach this Sunday. This is one of the most exciting Sundays that I get to teach on. Now, on that point, it's one of the hardest ones, I think, because it's such a big story. It's a huge story. And so trying to bring all of that into 45 minutes of study is near impossible. And studying for this didn't work very well. Because, I mean, when you go through and you start from the beginning and you start seeing these awesome things God was doing and you read this story, there's so many details in it and it's such a beautiful picture and how detailed it is that he did this for us and how it was set up perfectly. I mean, prophecy on prophecy on prophecy. What he's done, what that entails, going through sin, what that looked like, our division from him, you know, and then the redemption that comes and the humility that he came in. And so it is an awesome story, and we're going to try to pack it into 45 minutes. So bear with me. But first, I wanted to talk about other stories because this story is full of hope and purpose for us as humans, right? It is. Now, humanity does not like having an authority over them. They like their own will. And so to escape this story, what they'll do is they'll come up, of course, with another story. And they'll invent something else where they can maybe have a little bit more power in that story or be more of the main character in that story. Still have a little bit of God in there. We don't want to throw him completely out, but they want to have a little bit more in the story than what they have rather than just the sinner that has to depend on a God to save them. That's a scary thing. That takes a lot of faith. And so rather than have that and have a little bit of power in your life, let's go make up another story is what people will do. And so some of these stories include this story of a young man who goes out, he receives these golden tablets from a spirit who had reestablished the true gospel that had been lost. This gospel was based on the work of a savior and the obligation to the LDS church, this new gospel that was the more correct one. There are 12 steps that a male believer achieves to enter into the celestial kingdom and from there have exaltation or godhood applied to them. Then the man can take for himself a planet and with his celestial wife populate it. Women, I have no idea why you'd want to be a part of this to be eternally pregnant. (laughs) But that's your promise. (laughs) Some guy made this up, right? (laughs) That's one of the stories that's been given. It's a crazy story, but man has an involvement in it, and man gets to be a little bit of a god in it at the first, and that they get to do works. They have the 12 steps that they can go through to achieve this celestial being, and now they get to become a god, go have their own planet. Another story of a young man turning from polytheism and taking only one of the main deities from his culture and making him and deeming him as the one true god over all. Again, through an angel, this young man received a new revelation about this God's ways and expectations of people. To receive salvation, the person must be fully devoted to his religion and the prophet and only that one true God. Anybody that abstains from them, they are told in the scriptures that this angel or this spirit has given them that you go and you defeat those people, and if they do not recant, you take them down, you you kill them. That's a lot of power for man. It's a lot of power. It's another one of those that, again, looking at this and and setting it up so that man has some kind of say in his destiny as far as where he's going to go and how he's going to get there. Creating himself another story. Another story, a third story, is a man... Well, like many stories, there's lots of them. I'm just hitting on a couple, but there's a lot of them through history. But this man, he's a young prince... He was trying to unlock the suffering of the world. He was out discovering that there's a lot of suffering in this world, that the old are dying, that there's these poor people that are dying, that that there's all these bad things that are happening. There's a lot of suffering. So what's the answer to this suffering? Because obviously there's wrong in suffering. So how does this get taken care of? And after much self-denial and near death because he starved himself to death almost with some of his other guys that he brought out into the woods, he finally decided that wasn't the way, so he ate some food and then he went and sat under a tree. And some say it was an overnight revelation. Some say that he was under that tree for six months without food and water because it was miraculous. And at that point, he came to enlightenment. You guys might also know it as nirvana. 
And then from there, he developed four truths along with some help of the other people down the line after he passed in an eight-step program to enlightenment, to be able to escape or conquer suffering in the world. This was this guy's story. This is where he said, this is what's going to happen. And then the God has been taken out of the place, so it's fully dependent on man to come to a place in his mind to conquer suffering. The final story I have for you is the one where hope and purpose, as these other three that I've told you have tried to discover hope and purpose, this third one that just throws them out the window and says there is no hope and purpose. Hope and purpose is something that's been given in fairy tales. From the very beginning, there was nothing, and that nothing by chance produced something. Through many years, this something has become you and me. Because it was from nothing and by chance, there is nothing to be hoped for beyond this world and no purpose to being in this world. These are man's stories that they come up with to try to find hope and purpose or to throw it completely out of the window and so their purpose now is live for today because today, you know, tomorrow you could die. It doesn't matter. Live for self. It's a sad place. Every one of these stories struggles for that. But there is one story, and you guys know what I'm getting at. I mean, the world has those, but we have this story that's been given to us. And it's at that point when we go through this in this morning that I hope you guys know, and I know so many of you guys know that this is a true story. This isn't some fairy tale. But maybe there's some people in here that struggle with that. Maybe some of it they believe that it is partly a true story, but there's things in here I can't believe because it's so beyond anything I've ever seen in my own life and, and been able to touch in my own life, so therefore it can't be real. It breaks the laws of nature, and so that's not possible. And so we'll go through that, and I hope by the end of this that you guys see that this true story that we're given is not only just a story to tell us where we're at, what we need, and everything, but it's such a beautiful story. It's awesome what's been done here and where we've been. So before we get into it, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you, and we just thank you so much for this morning just to get to worship you, and even those songs, it's so good to come before you. And to speak of who you are and, and what place you hold in our lives, Lord, that you are absolutely Lord and King. Thank you so much for coming and doing what you've done to restore that relationship with us, Lord. You're such a good God to us, Lord. And I pray as we go through your scriptures and many scriptures this morning, Lord, that you just show us your plan and how perfectly it was worked out and what we have looked forward to in the future. Our hope and our purpose with you. We thank you so much that you've given us that, Lord, that we have... Things that we do here, Lord, that we have things we can look forward to, things that we don't see yet. Lord, I pray you'd strengthen us and continue just to build us up in, in your ministries, Lord, and in the work that you have for us in our character, Lord, that we could be that light to the world. Lord, I pray for anybody this morning that doesn't know you yet, I pray that this would be the day that as we go through these scriptures and as we go through your word and, and your truth, Lord, that they see that this absolutely is the true story, that the world has no other story that can compare to this one. Pray they turn to you, Lord. Speak through me, Lord, and just use me. Holy Spirit, just fill me, please, as we go through your word. We love you so much. Amen. Amen. All right. So, the place we pick up is clear in Genesis, and that's why this is such a big story. We're going through the whole Bible today, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you laugh. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> Genesis, go over to Genesis chapter, we'll start out in two, or three, sorry. And you guys know the first part of the story, but I'm going to go through it again. Here it is, this beautiful setting that God has made that we get a rule over. He puts man in this garden, and we have this dominion over all the animals and everything that he's created to take care of it. But one of the coolest things is that he makes this beautiful garden for us that we get to go and walk with God in it. We get to go shoot the breeze with God. You guys imagine that? What a neat setting of us getting to walk with him. Now, that is our future hope, isn't it? Like, we get to be restored to that. That's awesome. So here's man. He's in the garden. He's walking with God. And God says, here's my will for you. Don't do this. I want to protect you. Man says, well, I have my own will. And so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do my own thing. And, of course, they eat the fruit. They disobey God. Get kicked out of the garden. And right away we see two religions come out of this. Two ways of life come right from the very beginning right out of this. 
And it's in verse 7 of chapter 3 that we see that both of them, speaking of Adam and Eve, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Right away, man covers himself up. Right away, man goes and takes something temporal that's going to rot off of him and tries to cover himself up, something that's not sufficient. Not only that, but in the next verses it says, And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We see man here doing two different things that he continues to do. He continues to try to cover himself because he sees that he's naked. He sees that he's sinful. And the next thing is he tries to hide from God from the very beginning. If you guys jump ahead a little bit, then what it says is that then the Lord in verse 22 or sorry, verse 21, as he just went through and he gave the curses to the woman and the snake and the man. He gets to verse 21, and he says, Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. And from the very beginning, we get to see God's way. Man tried to take these fig leaves, and God says, No, there has to be something that's taken care of here. And we see the first animal that is killed to cover up man. Man tried to do it his own way. God says, no, here, take these skins. And so from the very beginning, we see here's the problem. We have sin that's entered the world. We see that man wants nothing to do with God, does not want God's will, wants his own will for his life. Feels guilty about it, knows something's off there, knows something's messed up, and so tries to cover himself and then hide from God at the same time. God steps in. Even in a little bit, back in verse 14 or 15, he even talks to, when he's talking to the serpent, and he says that, guess what? The woman's going to have a seed someday that's going to crush your head. That promise that's already given about Jesus Christ coming. That there is a solution that's going to happen here. But as we go through the scriptures this morning, we see this. There's this buildup that's going to happen as we see Christ enter into the world. It's this whole story of what has to happen, this perfect sacrifice, and the scriptures go through that. And so in this very first part, Man cannot cover himself. God has to do it. That's what we see here. God is the one that has to cover man. It's him that gives the covering, right? So Satan's going to have his head crushed as the nether promise, and so there was this hope of blessing in the future, but also there would be this reminder of man's errors or sins. And so the sacrifice had to take place. So in Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to Cain and Abel, right? And we see the first offering given. And some people will conclude and say, well, the reason that, that Cain's offering was not accepted because it was fruit, it wasn't an animal. But that's not the case, because we see that later on in Leviticus, they're giving different grains, they're giving vegetables. The whole purpose of it was is that God wanted the first fruit. Because if you notice, it said that he just took the stuff from the ground, the fruit off the ground, which could mean that it was the stuff that grew out of the ground, or even some people think that it's the stuff he just pulled off that fell off the tree. Like, here, we can go give this to God. <laughs> you know, those nasty apples that are on the ground. But it ends up that Abel comes and he brings his firstborn of the flock, right? Like, the one that you want to keep and keep going with this. There's a lot of faith that he was giving that. Because that was what was going to produce even better flocks if he kept that one. Because it was without blemish. It was that one that he was bringing to him. So we see the first offering given to God here from these two guys. And God is asking for the best. He's asking for the first fruits. He's asking for the firstborn. So we see that God is the only one that gives the covering, and the next is he wants the best, right? Then, later in Genesis chapter 12, a promise was given to Abraham. Or actually, at the time, his name was Abram. And in chapter 12, verse 3, he says, And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in all the families of the earth shall be Blessed, And that's going back to that promise of the woman having that seed. So now we're seeing two things rise out of here. That man has sin that has to be taken care of. God's the one that can take care of it. And there's this blessing that's supposed to be coming. That all the nations of the world be blessed. So the story starts to unravel here. And then out of the blue, in Genesis 22, which is if you're reading through this story... Let's say it's the first time you guys have ever read this, because a lot of us, we grew up in a Christian home, we, we, we've been through this, we already know this story, but try to take yourself out of that picture and see this as if you were just reading through this the first time. You see that there's a problem, sin, 
It has to be taken care of. There's this blessing that's coming. We know God's going to deal with it somehow. I don't know if you guys read books this way, but you get to all the characters and the plot, and you kind of understand it, and then you skip to the end so you can find out the end. Because <laughs> you're like, I want to know what happens. Like, forget all these other pages, right? This is just mumbo-jumbo. And then once I get to know what's going to happen, then I'll go back and I'll read through the characters. I don't know if you guys do that. All right. You know, maybe. That's, <laughs> that, I guess it's like now we could, you know, jump to the end of the movie. So, like, you know, you're watching some Marvel one, and you're like, hey, what's going to happen? And several in those, we always know what's going to happen. So. But you're always, that suspense is built up, so you go there. But as you're reading through this, just imagine you're reading through this. You know that there's this problem. It has to be taken care of. God's going to take care of it. And then you come to this crazy chapter in chapter 22 where God asks Abraham to take the promise that he'd been given to him through Isaac. And he says, I want you to go and sacrifice that. I want you to go sacrifice your kid. All of a sudden, if I was going through this for the first time, I'd be like, hey, we've got some problems here. This promise is being taken out. God's not dealing with sin because he's asking for this human sacrifice. He wants his dad to kill his son. What? This doesn't make any sense to me. Wouldn't that be murder? So now I, I look at it as this is a whole contradiction that's going on. It really confused me. But then you see the plan, and you know that Abraham, he knows what's going on here, and he has faith in what's going to happen here. I don't know if you guys have ever caught this verse in verse 5 of chapter 22, but even Abraham knew he was coming back with Isaac. Did you guys know that? He knew he was coming back, because he says to the young man, so he goes up there, he has his, uh, uh, his mules or his donkeys, and, he, and they're carrying all the lumber that he's going to be using, or the timber that they're going to be uh, using for the sacrifice, and they brought these other servants, these young men along with them. In verse 5, Abraham talks to those guys. He says to the young men, he says, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go in yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. We will come back to you. So Abraham knew something was going to have to happen. Either he was going to have to go through with what God had asked him, which he definitely was going to go through it because he was right over the top of him with a knife. And then his son was going to have to be resurrected after that. Or God was going to stop it. But he was going to go through with it. And so we get to this crazy story about here's the promise being put on the altar and about to be sacrificed, thinking this whole thing's blown out and now this story has just gotten crazier. But then we look at it and we see that this was God's plan to show what needed to happen in the future. That the firstborn, this promise, was going to have to be sacrificed. And then it's awesome because right at that time, as the angel steps in and says, do not do it. We see that you're going to obey the Lord. Then they found a ram in the thicket, right? Isn't that neat? So this ram in the thicket, they go over there, and they end up sacrificing this lamb. And Abraham calls the place in verse 14. He says, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as is said this day. The Lord will provide. So God has this covering. Again, he's just reassuring us that he's the one that's going to cover us. He's the one that's going to provide, just like we did with those tunics. He provided the covering. It's up to him, not to us. And the story moves on into Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is where we find right at the end of the plagues when Moses is, is by command of God, taking the Israelites out of Egypt and they come to that last thing that the Lord's going to do, that Passover. Now in this Passover, they had certain rules that they had to go find the firstborn. They had to find that lamb that was perfect without blemish is what it says. And they're supposed to cut it open and use the blood and go outside. And on their doorpost, they're supposed to put the blood over it. So this innocent lamb has to be killed so that this angel of death would not go in and kill the firstborn of the house. So this is the first time we get to see that blood is very important. Now before it was used, and later it's going to be used to consecrate things, but right here it's showing us that blood has a very significant part in the redemption process. That death will not come to man if the right blood is shed, if that obedience is taken. And so the people obeyed God, took that lamb, that innocent lamb, and put that blood over the door, and death passed them by. Death had no power over them that night. The great Passover. Again, another picture into what has to happen. 
Then as the scriptures continue in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible Moses wrote, he describes through the power of the Holy Spirit the law of God to his people. And as he goes through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it goes and lays out what the offerings and what the sacrifices had to look like. It gets very detailed on them. And again, it's the lamb or some animal that has to be slain and it has to be perfect. And the blood has to be spilled out. And the blood has to be taken before God. And we have that picture, too, with even in the tabernacle as it gets put up there later. And as they describe the process through that with the high priest and, and how the blood, and if you guys don't know, what would happen is the lamb would come in, and you'd bring your lamb in, you'd put your hand on its head, the priest would slit its throat while your hand's on it, and they would catch the blood. And then from that point, you left the place of the tabernacle, and then they took that blood and went and put it before God. That's why in Psalms it says that he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's what happens, that sin, that separation that takes place through his work. And so we get to see, I mean, you guys could go, and that's why I wish we had more time, but you guys can go in and see the details with even in the tabernacle and all the laws that God had there and showing and pointing to a work that he was going to do, pointing to a hope that the people had in revealing their purpose and their plan that he had. So the story comes to a complication. Man cannot walk with God in the garden because of his sin. Sin can be covered by the blood of an animal. But the problem is, is that the sin has not been put away. The sin has only been covered. So there's still a dilemma that's there. So the author, God, He can't be fully known by man yet. He has his word that he's giving through his prophets. But then there's this awesome thing that ends up happening. And I love what C.S. Lewis writes about this. In C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, it's the first part of his life where he comes to Jesus Christ. If you guys don't know, C.S. Lewis was, first, he grew up in a Christian home. Then he went very heavy into atheism. I mean, completely, it was like, God does not exist. There's nothing like that. Then as he slowly started coming out, he deemed God as... Not God, he didn't call him God, he called him the Spirit. And what C.S. Lewis believed is that, you know, through his studies and what he had started to, as he, as he came closer to God, not there yet, he saw that there absolutely could be no personal relationship with this Spirit. And he related it to, and he said, it's like a drama, it'd be like Shakespeare and Hamlet. Hamlet could never know Shakespeare, right? He could never know him, and so... C.S. Lewis there for a time was just lost in that thought of God is not personal, which is what a lot of people have gone to, right? Our day and age, that's a, it's a big belief now. That yeah, okay, I'll believe that there's a spirit, there's this God or there's this, this authority or there's this thought process. Even some people call it the universe. You know, the universe was good to me today. Like they'll just put it on that, but they hate putting the name God or Jesus on it. Because that, that, that means accountability, Right? So they're happy with just putting that there, like what C.S. Lewis did, and just saying that I can't know him, therefore I'm not that important to him, therefore there's no really any purpose for what I have, except for to be a good person and to live my life. There's no hope there. However, this is what happens. There was this atheist that was very close to C.S. Lewis, and he ended up coming in there and saying, you know what, by the evidence of the scriptures, I can see that it's not that far off, as he started converting and this was an atheist that C.S. Lewis said, I'd never, ever, this guy would never, ever say anything good about Christianity. And here he was, slowly moving that way as well. And he rocked his world. And he came to the place where he realized that this struggle of his own theological beliefs, that what had to happen, and this is what he says, he says, that if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could not initiate anything. And he came to this humble place seeing that he couldn't initiate anything with God. It had to be him. And as other writers have written through the past, and as I've read some of these guys, and I love how they take this, and they show that it's so awesome because what has happened is God has written himself into the story. He realized that Shakespeare and Hamlet could never meet. Hamlet could know everything about Shakespeare by the creation around him. The story he put him in, the surroundings that he's put him in, you could see little tidbits of the author in that, 
but he would never meet him unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Of what God's done for us. And that's where the part that it blows my mind and what God has done for us because he wrote himself into the story. Now, theologically, this doesn't hold much ground because to write him into the story, well, he was there from the beginning. We saw it. Romans talks about seeing him through nature. Absolutely. I'm not saying that that's the way it is. But he's written himself in that he has to take the form of man so that that sacrifice can be taken and it can be used to cleanse man, to bring that redemption. That's the part where he's written him in. And so we come to the promise in Isaiah 9, which we already sang about this and we went through it. But if you guys want to look at it again, Isaiah chapter 9. Nine, six, and seven. And this promise, what was going to happen for unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Awesome. So God sending his son to the world into the world to be the word among us, right? You guys remember John 1. Sending his word into the world. It's awesome. Writing himself in there. Be fully accomplished, fully obedient, and made perfect. And I say made perfect because I'm going off that scripture, and you guys know that Jesus Christ was absolutely was perfect. The reason that he was made perfect is because it had to show evidence of him being perfect. That's what that verse means. It does not mean that he was messed up and he was made into a perfect person. Jesus did not have sin. But if he was called perfect without any trials to show that he was perfect, how could we ever know he was perfect? That's what it means by made perfect. Made perfect through trials. Seen to be perfect would be another way to look at that. So he was sent as a newborn to humbly lay in a feeding trough and to be seen and praised by humble shepherds. And finally, to be the redemption of mankind, conquering death. It blows me away that God has this huge, awesome promise. And you would think, here's the creator of the universe, and you guys have been in the mountains he's made. They're unbelievable. They're beautiful. The beasts of the fields up there, they're awesome. Some neat things God has created, right? Our brains and what he's done, the things we're able to create, unbelievable. So you would think that the savior of the world is going to come in and it's going to be like the emperor's new groove. I don't know if you guys have seen that. You know, it's this big old parade coming on in. Or even Aladdin, right? You got this massive parade coming in to announce somebody that's so important. You'd have the most important people coming to declare, yes, in fact, this is the Messiah. But God instead, he has a whole different way. He doesn't do the things that we think because usually what we think is about us. And we want to be the prominent ones. God humbly puts his son here and is a little baby, very vulnerable, and puts him in a feeding trough. Doesn't even give him a building. Poor Mary has to give birth out with the animals. And then on top of that, he doesn't even bring these guys that are these kings or anything. He tells these shepherds out in the field that the Messiah has been born. And the first ones that get to come and sing praises are shepherds. Isn't that neat? You know what that means for us? It doesn't matter where we're at. We get to come and praise the Savior. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be these high and mighty people with a prominent power or, or positions to come and worship him. Like the first ones he wanted to worship him were low shepherds. But I think that it's awesome picture too because here's the shepherds coming to the ultimate lamb that's going to be sacrificed. And you guys have heard, and we don't know if it's a fact or not, but being in Bethlehem, this is where the shepherds that would raise up the lambs to be sacrificed in the temple, that's usually where they were. And so a lot of people believe that these are the shepherds that would raise up the lambs that would be sacrificed later. And here they are coming to see the lamb of God. So many neat pictures that happen here and such an awesome, beautiful story that God has created and then put himself in it. Creator has written a story and included himself as a main character, and yet man tries to write over what he has written. 
That's the sad part. Have you guys ever read a book that somebody else wrote wrote over the top of everything? I'm not just talking about like, okay, you can get a book sometimes and it's got the highlighters in it. And you're like, oh, come on. (laughs) Because your eyes automatically drawn to what that person got out of it. And you're like, it kind of ruins it for you. Well, now imagine somebody goes in there and they actually write over the top of the words. I mean, what would you do with that book? You're like, this is useless, isn't it? I came here to read what the author had to write, and here's somebody else putting their own information over the top of it, thinking as if it's better than what the author had. What right do they have to go and write on that book? Why don't they go write their own book? But yeah, they went and took this book and wrote all over it. And that's what people do all the time. These stories that I shared with you at the very first, those are stories that people have written over the top of the gospel. Making it useless in their lives, because they're the number one. Losing all hope and all, all, all purpose in their lives because they put themselves as the number one. And here God is showing himself to be humble because he wants to show us this is what it is to live after me. I want to show you what true obedience is. I desire humility. I don't want sacrifices and that stuff. I want a broken and contrite heart. That's what I want. And he starts showing that through his son. So then we come to... Hebrews 10, and that's where we're going to really focus on in this morning, in this scripture. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews, and I don't know if you guys have studied Hebrews, if you guys haven't, go through it. It talks a lot about what the Old Testament has to do with Jesus Christ and how he fits into the picture, and not only that he just fits in, that he is the picture. That everything that was done beforehand was about him and was just pictures of things on this earth of what really has happened in heaven. It's a beautiful story as it, as it goes through and it paints this picture for us and seeing what's had to happen and what has happened. And so as we read in Hebrews chapter 10, what we're going to find is the, this story. So we've come all this way. We know that there's this blessing. We know sacrifice has to take place, that God's going to provide, and now he's sent his son. And now what it's going to go through is why all these other things were insufficient and why we had to have the Savior. And so in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. And so we see from the very beginning, okay, God had set up this this process, but it was a picture of what needed to happen. And unfortunately, man had said, okay, this is what's sufficient. All I have to do is this. So I can go ahead and live the life I want to live, and then every Sunday I can go to church and I'll be okay. I'll go pray and ask for forgiveness. I'll go to some guy on the other side of a screen and confess everything, and I'll be good to go. Or as we go and sacrifice, as they did at this time, I'll go sacrifice these animals, and as I sacrifice these animals, I'm okay with God again. And that is not the case, and that's not what he was after, as he shows. And it even says there, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats would take away sins. Because if it was that way, they would have stopped. There would have been no purpose to keep going. But they had to always give that sacrifice. And the reason for it was to always put before man that you have a problem. You have a problem, and here's a temporal way to cover those sins, but something has to be done to wipe them completely out so that man, once again, can walk with God in the garden to bring that restoration back. And this is where we get into that really beautiful part of that story is because those don't work. And if you guys jump back a little bit on chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 12, says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and, and the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse our consciousness from the dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, because of all that, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. And those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And it's so important, it says, for this reason, he's the mediator. No other man on this earth is the mediator. No other man is. Has any other man died for you and brought redemption to your life? I would never go and confess my sins so that they could be forgiven to another man. They have no right in that area. They didn't die for me. No church has died for me. No church brings me salvation. It's only through my Savior, and that's what it's talking about. It says, if the blood of the bulls and the rams and and all the animals that they sacrificed for all those years, those millions of animals, were sufficient to God to cover up at the time, how much more will Jesus Christ's blood be? How much more? Also in 1 Peter, if you guys look over there, 1 Peter chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. So no matter how much you paid either, (laughs) you couldn't get out of it. But with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained, foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus came as that redemption. Go back over to Hebrews chapter 10. And you read on there, they go back to talking about even what David said, that this is not a New Testament thing. That this is something that absolutely is from the beginning. And so he goes back to Isaiah and and reads from there. And in verse 5 of chapter 10, he says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Speaking of Jesus. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He's talking about the covenant. Takes away the first, establishes the second. The second being that grace that he's established. And then I love this verse. He says, By that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood or the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And that's right where is the climax of the story, isn't it? We looked from the very beginning and we see this sin coming in, and now we're in this despair. We can't walk with God anymore in His garden. We've been cut off for all eternity. All eternity, we've been cut off from the Creator, guys. That'd be a horrible thing because I don't think that we understand, especially here in, in as, as we have very prosperity, like our lives are very uh, full of prosperity and, and good things and we, ha- we live in a country that's awesome and we get all these privileges and so it's really hard to see what we're without. That's why it's very hard when you go to a country that their they're, they're, they're economy is up there and you want to go share the gospel it's very hard because they're like, well, why would I need a God? I got everything I need. Because their mentality is, what can he add to what I need? Because remember a long time ago, I preached a sermon on, on uh, past the Jesus, as if he was some kind of salt to put on your, your food. He goes along with what you already have. That's what usually people look at it. Well, what, what else can he do for me? My life is pretty good already. What, what, what else am I going to get out of this deal? Rather than seeing in some places where they fight for their lives daily, whether through hunger or battles or wars going on around them, and they know that they have to be dependent on God for their survival. And even in those instances, some of the people, their only outlook is, God can save me from this, and that's the only reason I want him, is to preserve me from these things. But when we come to the place, and the reason this story has been written is because it's showing us it's not about your circumstances you're in, it's about your nature. 
It's about your nature that needs to be dealt with, not your circumstances. Jesus Christ did not come to change your circumstances. He came to change your nature. He came to redeem, to bring back that fellowship with the Father. That's why he came. That's why the story had to go through all these things. To make it very serious before man that, hey, you need to go kill that innocent animal because you're the one that messed up. You need to go kill that little lamb because it's your fault. And it needs to be covered up. And then you come to the ultimate plan. After God has shown all that, the nature has to change in man. And the only way it's going to happen is if another man comes and lives a perfect life. And through Israel, he showed that that's impossible. He'd give them every blessing under the sun, every law that he could give to them to help them, and they would still mess it up, just like every human being will mess it up. That it is impossible. That no matter how many things you throw at it, no matter how many works you throw at it, coins you throw at it, religious activity you throw at it, it's not going to be sufficient. And that's why it says you don't want the sacrifices. You don't want the offerings. You prepared a body, Jesus Christ, And Jesus Christ, here's the thing, is it's interesting because the lambs were killed when they were young, right? Most of the time. Lamb, okay, not sheep. Now there were rams and stuff like that that were, but a lot of times the symbolism is of a lamb. And I always thought it was interesting that why wasn't Jesus killed as a young infant or as a little child? Because that would be even a more representation of an innocent, wouldn't it? That would make it even more like (laughs) hammer dropped. We just had a kid that was killed for us. That's pretty heavy. Well, why is it that God didn't do that? Well, the reason is it goes back to that he had to show himself perfect because we could go along, we give excuses and say, well, you know, he's just a kid, so of course he wasn't held accountable for his sin. And he may have had sin because every kid has sin. But as you look at the life that he lived out, you get to see that there's this period about him and it needed to be lived out like that so he could go through everything that we've gone through. That, again, him writing himself into our story. You guys know that we get to go before God on Jesus' behalf because Jesus is there saying, I've been through that. I know what they're going through. Every temptation you guys have to go through, Jesus has been through it. Isn't that cool that he relates with us? It's not some far-off God, some fairy tale or some little thing that this God of the universe is like, okay, you guys, I want you to do this, and you're going to have to do this, and we're looking at it like that's impossible. I try every day to do that, and I mess up. Instead, Jesus comes and he says, I did all that and I fulfilled all that. And now, you know what? God's going to look at you through me. That redemption has come. That blood that gets sprinkled on you and poured on you, that sacrifice is going to be poured on you so that he sees you. Or he sees me through you. Sees me and therefore you're redeemed. Romans chapter 3. As we get close to the end. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. You guys know this part of Scripture. This is something we've gone to. If you guys don't, listen up. If you guys are being just spoken to this morning, this is a story you haven't heard before. This is an exciting thing. Listen to what God has to say here through Paul. As he writes to Romans, he says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So it's just saying that, you guys, from the very beginning, it hasn't been done through the law, but now it has. The law has been revealed through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God has come in Jesus Christ, and we have faith in Jesus Christ. It says there's no difference because in verse 23, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a perfect person out there. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in in Christ Jesus a gift, as it talks about in Ephesians 2.8, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, that in his forbearance God had passed over, there's that word again, passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of what Jesus has gone through, because of what God did through him, because of his obedience to the Father to go to the cross for us, now he is the justifier of those who believe in him. And that's the beauty of this story. That's 
where we get to see that all these sins have been put away. Like we read in Hebrews 9, it talks about just putting those away. And we're going to go there in just a second. But this beauty of it all coming together, that it's been dealt with through him, and now he gets to be the justifier of those who do good works for him, of those that throw coins at him. It's none of that. And it's a sad story that there's other people still writing that, that yes, you can go to Jesus Christ, and he is salvation, but he's only the door. And we'd be like, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely, Jesus Christ is the door of salvation. They said, yeah, but after that, there's this hallway you need to walk down. And as you go down through this hallway, here's all these other doorways you need to go through. So I need to have this from you. I need this from you. You need to do this better. You need to do this. And at the end is the ultimate salvation. So yes, Jesus is the door you walk through to get to that place, but here's all the things you need to do along with him. Man, right in his story, again, over the words that have already been put there. Again, man trying to have power in his own life to say and be sure of what he thinks is salvation. And he completely takes away the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has given. They only had to give it. Go over to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven's should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And all it's talking about is that the old practice was is all the furniture in the, in the tabernacle and the temple, all the things that were going to be used for the sacrifices, they had to take a red heifer that was perfect, and they would go and cut it up and take its blood and, and anoint everything with that blood. Okay, That's what sanctified it. That's what set it apart. It wasn't just a normal thing anymore. So it's saying, okay, just the things on the earth have been done like that. There had to be even a greater blood that was put on the things of heaven, right? Of course, because it's heavenly. So that's what it's talking about. A better sacrifice than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. From the very beginning, God had this plan of this redemption that had to take place in this way that it needed to be done and it had to take place in heaven. It couldn't even take place on this earth because it had to be before him. He would come down to earth and he would work with man to have their sins covered but not taken away. The only place it could be taken away was up in heaven. So Jesus Christ is there. That's why it's so cool when it says he sat down at the right hand of God. But he says now, so there are copies of the truth in verse 24 at the end. It says, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another he then would have to offer or, or had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And as we close, if the worship team wants to come back up, this is the neat point we get to be at. We have this beautiful story, and I hope you guys, as you see Jesus Christ coming and dying for your sins, and those of you that do not know Jesus Christ, he invites you. He's done this awesome work for you. And it's not that you get to know Jesus, it's that he wants to reveal himself to you. It's an awesome thing for any of us that have come to Jesus Christ. Now for us so that know Jesus Christ, this last verse that's here, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who are eagerly waiting for him. We eagerly wait, don't we? Just as they had hope for this baby Jesus to come into the world to be raised up and to die for us, that hope that they had that sometime this was going to be taken care of, that this animal sacrifice would end. We'd have an ultimate sacrifice. That was their hope that they were looking forward to. We know that that's happened. That's no longer our hope. That's what we are in now. Our hope is that he comes back. Not to deal with sins, because we know he's dealt with, sin, dealt with sins. On the cross, that's what it says there. In the future, what he's coming to deal with is our salvation, right? That's what we hope for. That's our hope, and you guys can go through the scriptures, and Paul is always referring to the hope. The hope of our salvation, the hope of our resurrection. That's what we're excited about. And so what does that drive us to do? What is our purpose? To live out and please him, Right? He leaves us here on this earth to be his testimony among the people that don't know him yet.
to encourage and to edify those that do know him, to build up his church in the way that glorifies him, to follow after him and to obey the Father just as Jesus Christ obeyed the Father. That's a lot of purpose. That's not us just wandering around and doing what we think we need to do, taking whatever we think we need to take, using whoever we need to use. That's a complete, specific observation and a pointed look into what we're supposed to be doing as we follow after Jesus Christ. So that encouragement is there. Any of you guys that have heard this story, take it out there, guys. It's a great time of year. Great time of year to go and take somebody through this story and to show them a very concise view that this is what has been done, this is what needed to be done because there was a problem there and he took care of it. And now, again, in the future, guys, we get a walk with Jesus Christ. We get a walk with God in the garden. You know that he has the tree of life there in heaven. It speaks of that. The tree of life that they took and they guarded against Adam and Eve going back in there, that's ready for us again. What an awesome thing that we get to have that redemption, right? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you so much just for the story that you've made and the awesome, wonderful things that you show us through your scriptures, Lord, that we get to follow after you and we get to worship you because of what you've done and and how you've entered into our lives, Lord. It's an awesome thing. We thank you so much for making that plan of redemption that there was that obedience there and there was that ultimate sacrifice and it only had to be done once. Lord, we can't wait to be walking with you again. What an awesome day that's going to be, Lord, as we get to sit down at that marriage feast, Lord, and be married to the church and you. It's an awesome thing and a neat promise we have to hope for, Lord. I pray as we go through these days and as times do get harder and the world hates us more and more, Lord, that we continue just to hold on to that hope. And Lord, you remind us of our purpose over and over again just to please you and to keep doing those things that you've called us to do, Lord, what you've enabled us to do and the strength that you've given us to do them. Lord, if anybody here doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they would call out to you right now. They would call out, they would see their sin in their life, they'd see that they can't do anything without you. They can see through history that man has not ever been able to do anything to please you by his own means, that they have to fall on their face, Lord. I pray that they would see that it's only by faith and it's such an awesome thing that it is only faith in you and your sacrifice and that grace is poured out. Lord, I pray that they would just commit their lives to you and let you come in and be their Savior and rule over them as Lord. We just pray these things in your name. Amen.